You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. So the title of today's message is Water for Those Who Thirst. Last week we left off here in our study of the book of Acts, as we're going right through the book, we left off seeing Barnabas and Saul being sent out as the very first missionaries. They were following the leading of the Holy Spirit and that church where they were at in Antioch sent them out along with a few companions. They sent out a missionary team to go into the ancient Roman world and preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus and plant churches in areas where the good news about Jesus was not yet known. And Saul and Barnabas, they were both ethnically Jewish. But what's interesting about both of them is that they had each grown up outside of Israel in the Greek-speaking regions of the Eastern Roman Empire. Saul, or Paul, he had grown up in Tarsus, which is in eastern Turkey. Barnabas had grown up on the Greek-speaking island of Cyprus. And so where did they go on their first missionary journey? I find it interesting. First, they went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas grew up. And then they went to Turkey, which is what we're going to see today. And that's where Paul grew up. These are the places where these men had grown up. It would seem that now, having become disciples of Jesus, having had their lives changed by the gospel, they're, they're just filled with this desire to go back to the places they grew up and share with the people there the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them so that those people can receive that and be saved. So here's Paul and Barnabas. They grew up in these places. They both speak Greek. And whereas many Jewish Christians at this time especially were prejudiced against Gentiles or non-Jews, Paul and Barnabas understood the gospel in the sense that they understood that Jesus came for all people, all ethnicities. And so they had this great desire to reach out even to the Gentiles with the love of God and the hope of the gospel and to welcome in whoever would receive it. In this part of the first missionary journey here, there are three things that we're going to see. First, we're going to see changes, then we're going to see a message, and then we're going to talk about the response. So changes, a message, and the response. That's our outline for today. First of all, changes. Please read with me chapter 13, starting in verse 13. It says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You know, some people love change, but for most people, change is something we process as a sense of loss, even if it's a good change, right? Even if it's a, a positive change, like you changed out your, your trailer home for a nice, you know, house with a yard or something, right? It's still, there's a change and still there's some kind of sense of loss in there, right? Like you changed out your 1988 Honda, uh, you know, Honda Civic for like a nice new car. It's still, there's a sense of loss. There's part of it that has changed. And with any change, there's a sense of insecurity that comes and there's a fear of the unknown. Now here in verse 13, we see three significant changes that took place here halfway through this first missionary journey. First, there was a change of order, then there was a change of geography, and then there was a change of personnel. Let me, let me show you. There's actually a lot, quite, quite a bit right here in just this first verse, verse 13. First of all, we see a change of order. Until now, we have always read about 
Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But now, interestingly, in this first part of verse 13, we read about Paul and his companions. We see this marked change in order. You know, Paul and Saul, by the way, is the same person. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was a Roman name, which it seems that he began using when he went out into these predominantly Gentile areas of the Roman Empire. This is something that a lot of people do nowadays. Immigrants do this, you know, when they come to a new country or people who work cross-culturally. Sometimes they will take on a name which fits better in that setting just because it's more common to that place. I was once invited to speak at this conference in Finland. And the conference was in Finland, but it was for Chinese students. It was kind of interesting because in China, these students didn't have much opportunity to learn about Jesus or study the Bible. And so when they would come to Europe to study, a lot of them were hearing the gospel for the first time. A lot of them were becoming Christians. So I'm at this conference and all these Chinese students, you know, they would come up and introduce themselves to me. And they all had names like Jessica and, uh, and Sally and Mike. You know, you meet this person from China and they're like, my name is Sally. And you're like, really? You're from China and your name is Sally? And they'd be like, no, no, no. And then they tell me their actual name and I'd be like, I'm just going to call you Sally, okay? Because that's just a lot easier for me. So thank you. So they would choose a Western name to be more relatable to people in the West where they were. So for Paul, this is the same thing he's doing. This Roman name that he had isn't just to fit in, but it also has significance. In choosing this name, there's a meaning and significance to it because Paul in Latin means small. Saul, on the other hand, in Hebrew, means desired one or exalted one. So it would seem that in choosing this name, this man is making a statement about how his identity has changed now that he has come to understand the gospel. Whereas before he thought that he was a pretty big deal, uh, now he views himself differently. He views himself as a small person who needs a lot of grace. He's a small person who's hugely loved by God. He's a small person living to tell others about a great God. The change in order, though, is a matter of leadership. Until now, we've read about Barnabas and Saul, but now, interestingly, we read about Paul and his companions. Right? The order has changed. Now, starting here, from this point on, Paul's leadership and his prominence are going to be evident. It in this missionary journey and from here on out. And the question is, if you're Barnabas, how do you react to something like that? I mean, here's this guy that you yourself reached out to. You're the one who invited him to join you. And now this guy's taking the reins and you're taking the back seat. Your name's not even mentioned in this. Now it's Paul and his companions. You're just one of the nameless companions now. Let me ask you this. How do you respond to that? How about you in your own life when someone else in your company gets promoted above you? Maybe you've been there longer. When someone else in your field has success where you don't, how do you respond to that? Maybe like Barnabas, you know, you, you've been there longer and, and this person comes in and all of a sudden they have success and this, they rise in leadership above you. But I love the heart of Barnabas. If you look at it here, look at, the, look at how Barnabas reacts and we'll see this continuing on. As Paul's gifting and leadership result in Paul being elevated to this leadership role, Barnabas seems to be okay with it. He doesn't quit. He doesn't split off and take half the group with him and do their own thing. No, he continues on and he lets Paul take the lead and he just continues working with them. I love that Barnabas is more concerned about God's mission than he is about his own ego or his own image. His 
He, he's so secure in his identity, it seems to me, of who he is in Christ. He doesn't need to be the guy in charge. He doesn't need the title of leader. That's not where he gets his sense of value, his sense of worth. He gets his sense of value and worth from the fact of who he is in God's eyes. That before God, he's a beloved son, so valuable, so loved by God, that God would leave heaven to come for him and fight for him and suffer for him and even go to hell for him so that he could be his. And now he has the privilege of serving God. And, and Barnabas' attitude is, whatever my role, I'm just privileged to serve God. I'm here to serve the Lord. I love that heart of Barnabas. And I would ask you that question too. How about you? Where do you get your sense of identity and your sense of value from? Do you derive it from your success at work? From some hobby that you're particularly good at? Or, or maybe from a sense that you're just generally better than other people you know? All of those things, let me tell you, they're terrible foundations upon which to build an identity, on which to build a life. And here's why. Because all of those things are subject to change. Because what happens when you fail? What happens when someone else is better than you at that thing? Your identity was built upon that, and now your identity crumbles. But if you base your identity on who you are in God's eyes, then like Barnabas, if someone else succeeds in that field or gets promoted above you, it doesn't destroy you. Because it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't take away from your sense of value and worth. Because that is so secure. It's unchanging because it's based in God's grace and God's faithfulness, not in you and what you do. The second change we see in this first verse here, verse 13, the second change is a change of geography. I think this is interesting. So, you know, you can look at the map. Most of you probably have a map in your Bible of this first missionary journey. Here's what happens. They leave Paphos here, which is in Cyprus. They get on a boat and they ride this boat up to Perga in Pamphylia, which is the southern coast of the mainland of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. In verse 14, we read this. Then when they arrived there in Perga of Pamphylia, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, Antioch in Pisidia, it's important to note, is a different city than the Antioch which they left from originally, which, where the church was. That Antioch was in Syria. In fact, there were 16 different cities in the ancient Roman world which had the name Antioch. Kind of like in our day, there's the, we use the name Springfield for everything. I looked it up. There are 36 different cities named Springfield in the United States. For them, it was Antioch. They just had a lot of cities with that name. So this Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, is different. But it, this one is 120 miles north inland from Perga, which is the port city there on the southern coast of Turkey, which is where they arrived from Cyprus. So they, go, they arrive by boat to the southern coast of Turkey. They immediately leave and go 120 miles north. And this city, Antioch and Pisidia, was, no, was located in a region called Galatia. Now maybe you've heard of a letter that Paul wrote Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have that in our New Testament. That was a letter that Paul wrote to the new believers that are going to be in the churches that he's going to start here on this first missionary journey. Galatia wasn't a city like Ephesus or Corinth. Galatia was a region, and Antioch and Pisidia was one of the major cities in this region. But it's kind of intriguing, isn't it? I mean, why, of all places in the world, would Paul go here to Antioch and Pisidia, to this region of Galatia. I mean, of all the cities in the ancient world, why would he leave Cyprus and make a beeline, like as soon as he arrives in 
um, Perga, he just immediately leaves and goes to this town. Why didn't he stop in Perga? Why didn't he do some missionary work there? Why was he in such a hurry to get to Antioch in Pisidia? And it's interesting because when you look at Paul's letters, you can actually piece together the circumstances that tell us why Paul went to this place when he did. We know that when Paul came to the region of Galatia, to the city of Antioch in Pisidia, he was in bad shape physically. He was hurting. He was not doing well health-wise. Antioch in Pisidia, again, it's a, it's a region of Galatia. And what's interesting about it is it's located in the mountains. We would probably consider them low mountains, but when you're coming from sea level, they're, they're you know, pretty high mountains. It was at an elevation of 4,000 feet. Now, historians say that because of the high elevation, Galatia was a place that many people came to to escape the malarial fevers that plagued the coastal regions of the Mediterranean. And it was known that there were health benefits to the high altitude and the drier climate of the region of Galatia. Just like in our day, I mean, I have a friend when we were growing up, he was a child and he had such bad asthma that his parents moved their whole family to Arizona because the climate was better for his health. Now, that's kind of the same thing here with Galatia. It was known for being a good place to live for that reason. And most Bible scholars, most historians believe that that's what's going on here. That Paul and his team left Cyprus and came directly, intentionally, to the highlands of Galatia because Paul had come down with some sort of malarial fever. There's a fever in particular, they believe it was, it's known as Malta fever. And they came to this region so that Paul could get better and continue doing ministry just now in a region where he, it's better for his health. Let me, let me show you what kind of bad shape Paul was in when he arrived here in Antioch and Pisidia. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Galatians about his arrival here in Antioch and he says this, You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. He's saying the reason he originally went to Galatia was because of a bodily ailment that he had at the time. In verse 14 he says, And through my condition, or I'm sorry, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, even Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That apparently God guided Paul to Antioch, to the region of Galatia, through a illness that he suffered. And he went there because it was a place where it was going to be better for his health. I mean, can you just imagine Paul and Barnabas, the other missionaries who are with them, they're praying as they go out, right? They're praying, God, would you please lead us as we go? Show us where's the place that you want us to be. Guide us to the place you want us to share the gospel and preach and establish churches. Do you think at the time they were praying that they would have imagined that the way that God would lead them would be through a malarial fever through an illness. But now in hindsight, we can look back on this and we can say, yes, it seems that God was using this thing to get this missionary group to Galatia where God would use them to establish several churches and, and it results in a book of the Bible being written. This is what we call providence. Providence is the work of God, the intervention of God in our lives in these kind of behind-the-scenes ways, determining and guiding the details of our lives which are out of our control, but which often have a huge impact on the course that our lives take. Many of you have probably experienced things like this. Hardship, inconvenience, frustration, physical ailments, things that have sidelined you, things that have changed your course in life, an unexpected or undesired change in your life, a diagnosis, a, a layoff from work. 
It's encouraging to see this in the life of Paul, that he comes down with this terrible illness, but in retrospect, now we can see the providential hand of a loving God at work in all of these events. I hope that you're encouraged by that, because I certainly am. What it means for me, what it means for you, is that God loves you more than you even realize. It means that God is doing more in your life than what you can even realize in the moment and even comprehend in that moment. And the final change we see here in verse 13 is is this. It's a change of personnel. So we saw a change of geography, a change of order. Now we see a change of personnel. Now we don't know the names of all the other people who joined Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, but certainly it wasn't just the two of them. There was a group with them. But we, we read this one guy, John. Now this guy is known in other places in the Bible by two names. His name is John Mark. It's very common for people at that time to have two first names like that. And if you've ever heard of the Gospel of Mark, and then you've wondered, who is Mark? Like, I don't remember a disciple of Jesus named Mark. Who is Mark? Well, this is Mark. This man, John Mark, he was the son of a woman who was a disciple of Jesus during the time of Jesus' ministry. And John, was, uh, John Mark was a boy, and he grew up around the disciples. And Mark's gospel is the Apostle Peter's account of the life and ministry of Jesus written down and recorded by this man that we're reading about right here, John Mark. So here we read that he's part of this missionary journey. And when they get to Perga, it says that he left them and went to Jerusalem. Now we don't know the circumstances under which he left. But the language here is especially strong and it carries a very negative connotation. Basically, he bailed on them. He deserted them. He ditched them. Maybe he was homesick. We don't know. Maybe he didn't like it that Saul was now, or sorry, that Paul was now going to be the leader. Maybe he was scared of the journey ahead because as they go up in the mountains, traditionally mountains were the places where rebels and thieves and robbers would hide out. It was dangerous to travel in the mountains. Maybe there was an argument or a personal conflict that we don't know about, but whatever it was, we can be sure of this. The way that John Mark left here in verse 13, it wasn't good. Because later on in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to get into a big argument about John Mark. They're, they're going to be ready to go on their second missionary journey, and John Mark wants to come with them again, and Paul and Barnabas are going to say, you know, they get in an argument about whether or not they should let him come. Paul says, no way. This guy bailed on us before. He deserted us. He's not reliable. He's a quitter. And Barnabas says, you know, he's this big-hearted, you know, in- encouraging man, and he says, come on, Paul. Everybody gave you a second chance. Why can't you give this guy a second chance? And so the great Apostle Paul and this man Barnabas, the son of encouragement, they end up getting in such a big fight over this issue that they end up parting ways and just saying, we just can't work together anymore. Isn't that interesting that these two men, the very first missionaries, pastors and leaders, apostles in the early church, they still had fights and conflicts and friction. Isn't that interesting? Because I'll tell you what, it's not a problem that arguments and conflicts between people arise, even between people who are dedicated to living godly Christian lives. Conflicts, disagreements, hurt feelings, they happen. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's part of any relationship that we enter into. Anytime you get two people near each other, it's a matter of time before they'll butt heads on something. But what matters is what you do with these conflicts, how you handle these conflicts. That's what's important. Now, I remember that uh, when I lived in Hungary, I I worked with a young pastor, um, and he was newly married, 
And we got to talking about marriage one time. And he told me, you know, my wife and I, we've been married for a couple of years now. And we've never gotten in a fight. Because we both just love Jesus a lot. And we never fight, right? Now, some people might hear that and they might say, wow, what an awesome testimony. Like, what a godly couple, right? But here's the truth. And it turned out after a couple of years. The truth was that instead of dealing with legitimate feelings that they had, they're both just kind of bottling up. They're suppressing their feelings and disagreements, their hurts, and they're just trying to put on their happy face all the time. And after a few years, you can't do that for, for very long, right? After a few years, it developed into resentment and unhappiness and a very unhealthy marriage with two very depressed people. Because conflicts and disagreements, they're part of life. And whenever you get two people or more together in close proximity to one another, it's going to happen. So it's not that conflict is bad. It's not that arguments or disagreements are bad. It's a question rather of what are you going to do with them? How are you going to handle them? Are you going to respond in a godly way? Are you going to show love and compassion? Are you going to show forgiveness and forbearance? See, that's what's distinctive about Christianity. What's distinctive about Christianity is not that Christians just always get along and are are super happy all the time. It's that Christians have a distinctive way of handling and responding to conflict, which is shaped by how God dealt with us. That's what it's shaped by. That at one time, we were in conflict with him. And while we were in conflict with him, while we were enemies with him, he gave his life for us. He laid down everything for us. He forgave us of our sins before we ever asked for forgiveness, before we ever repented. He did it. You see, that's what's distinctive about Christianity. And it comes from an understanding of the gospel. And not to get too far ahead of the story or to to ruin it for you, but Paul and Barnabas and even John, Mark and and Paul, they're all going to reconcile later on down the line. So here we begin this section, halfway through the missionary journey, we see a lot of changes. And, and we also see here the distinctively Christian approaches to facing changes that come from an understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let's go on to our next section, which is a message. Let's read from verse uh, 14. On the Sabbath day, they went into a synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen up. I love that he's preaching it, right? He's moving his hands. I think you're not really preaching unless you're using your hands. That's my opinion. But a typical synagogue service would have a reading from the Torah, and then there would be a sermon time. And it was common that if there was a distinguished visitor, you know, a visiting teacher, a leader of the synagogue might invite them to share a a word with the assembly. And Paul knew that this would happen. You know, so when he goes to synagogue, he's probably dressed up to make sure that they understand that he is a, you know, a teacher, a rabbi. He's prepared for this. And he's going to take this opportunity, this open door here in the synagogue, to share with them the message that he's traveled all this way to tell them. And there are two parts that I want to show you from this message. First of all, there's the story behind all the stories. And then secondly, there's the rest of the story. So the story behind all the stories and then the rest of the story. He begins with the story behind all the stories. In verse 17, he begins by recounting to them Israel's history. You can follow along with me. I'm not going to read every verse. He's going to talk about how God chose Israel to be his people because God had a plan for history and he wanted to carry that plan out through 
this people Israel. And what was that plan? That plan was the story behind all the stories. And Paul now begins to recount the stories. The slavery in Egypt, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of Canaan. It was very common for the Jewish people to recount their history. Even if you read some of the Psalms and it seems, why do they keep just going over the history? It was very important to them to recount the history. And that's what Paul's touching on here. In verse 20, he said he mentions to them the period of the judges. And he mentions Samuel, the greatest of the judges. And from verse 21, the first king, Saul, who had the image of a king but lacked the heart of God. In verse 22, God raised up another king after Saul, a king after his own heart, one who didn't look like a king. He was a shepherd boy from a poor family, but he had something that God considered beautiful and valuable. He had an amazing heart for God and a desire to do God's will. And God made a promise to David, we read there, that one of his descendants would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of Kings. This is the story behind all the stories. Everything that happened in Israel's history was leading up to this thing, that from this nation would come one through whom salvation would come to the world. And he says in verse 23 of this man, David, his offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Now can you imagine that for thousands of years, these people have been talking about and waiting for the Messiah to come. And now Paul gets to be the one who comes and tells them that the Messiah is here and his name is Jesus. Verse 24, he says, he's the one who John the Baptist talked about. When people wondered if John the Baptist was the Messiah, John said, no, that there's one coming after me and I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. He's talking about Jesus. In verse 26, he says, this man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, they didn't recognize who he was. They teamed up with the Romans and they crucified him. They killed him. They placed him in a tomb and he laid there for three days. Verse 27 and verse 28. It was actually prophesied of the, in, the whole, in the Hebrew scriptures that this is what would happen to the Messiah. That people wouldn't recognize him. That people would kill him. But by doing this, they were actually fulfilling the plan of God. They were doing what needed to happen. There's a very interesting phrase in verse 29, if you'll notice it, it says that they took him down from the tree and they placed him in the tomb. Why, does it, why do they call it a tree and not a cross? Well, here's why. Paul is speaking to Jewish people in a synagogue, people who would be familiar with the Jewish scriptures, and he's making a connection with them with the Jewish scriptures. And that is this, that in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that a person who hangs on a tree is accursed. Now later on when Paul would write to the Galatians, he would explain this. He would, he would hash this out even more and he would explain that Jesus, by hanging on a tree, Jesus was being cursed by God with the curse that we deserve. Jesus, the Messiah, he came to save us by taking our curse upon himself, by becoming cursed for us so that we could be forgiven and we could be set free. So God sent us the Messiah, but we killed him. We hung him on a tree, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Don't you love that? Don't you love that phrase, but God? Isn't that just the most beautiful pairing of words in the English language? But God. God sent us a Savior, but we rejected him, but God. He didn't give up. Aren't you thankful for the but God moments in your life? Right? You messed up, you blew it, but God, he didn't give up on you. You were going off in one direction, but God, he intervened, he stepped in, he changed things. 
These are the two most wonderful words in the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul expounds on this even more. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were walking according to the way of the world. You were opposing God, but God. Not because of what you were doing, but because of his great love with which he loves you. He intervened in your life. He pulled you out of that and he gave you a new life. He saved you, not because you deserved it, but because of his grace and his love for you. That's the message of the gospel. You and I, we deserve for God to give up on us. We deserve for God to say, you know what? Enough's enough. You can have it your way. If you want judgment, if you want to go to hell, then so be it. Goodbye. But the good news of the gospel is this, it's but God. But God hasn't given up on you. But God still loves you. But God raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise your life up from the pit as well. He will bring you from death to life also. Maybe there are some of you here today and this is the message that you need to hear. This is the story behind all the stories. Don't you see that these words, but God, that's the story that all the stories tell. And it's the story that can be true of your life personally. God sent his savior But people killed him. But God raised him from the dead. In verse 31, he says, There are so many eyewitnesses to this event. We're here to bring you this good news that the Savior has come. He's the one written about in the Psalms, verse 32 through 36. He says, Jesus, he's the one that all of history has been building up to and pointing to and preparing for. Now, it's important not to miss the emphasis of what Paul's saying here. Is Paul talking about philosophy or, or even theology. I mean, certainly there are some theological elements to what he's saying, but that's really not the focus of what he's saying. No, you know what Paul's talking about here? He's talking about matters of history. Historical events that took place at a particular time, in particular places. Jesus died on a cross. It happened on a Friday, right? At a specific place. And I could take you there if you want to go there. Jesus was placed in a tomb. I'll show you which one. He rose from the dead. People saw him. The foundation of Christianity is not philosophy. It's not speculation. It's not subjective feelings or experiences. The foundation of Christianity is historical facts that happened in time and space. And whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, it doesn't change the fact that at a certain time, at a certain place, Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross for your sins and three days later he rose from the grave. And it's so important to see this and remember that Christianity is based on this. It's based on historical events and that is what Paul is preaching to them. Now from verse 38, Paul's going to tell them the rest of the story. Verse 38, please read with me. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. These historical events we've been talking about, they have actual bearing and significance upon your life. Here's how, because of what Jesus did for you, bearing that curse of our sins upon himself on the cross, you can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can be born again and set free and have eternal life. That's something that no amount of good behavior or right living could ever accomplish for you. Jesus did it for you. That's the good news. But there's more. There's also the rest of the story, and that's this, that along with this good news, there must come a warning. 
there must come a warning that if you do not embrace this salvation that is offered to you by God, if you don't embrace it with your whole heart and your whole life, if you scoff at it or if you take it lightly, then you need to be warned. You need to be aware that you will perish. Paul is quoting here from the prophet Habakkuk and he's saying this, friends, a beautiful gift is being offered to you by God, a gift of salvation and forgiveness and grace, but understand the weight of this. Understand this because if you refuse it, you will perish. It's not a question. The judgment of God will come upon you. And that's a heavy message, but it's a message that we must share. I mean, Paul feels obligated not just to tell them the story behind all the stories. He feels obligated. He must tell them the rest of the story. That rejecting Jesus isn't just a matter of personal preference, like like I like Coke instead of Pepsi, right? Rejecting Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell. And at the end of the day, if you will look at Jesus and see what he did for you on the cross, and you will turn your back on that, you will reject it. Here's the warning, you will perish. I don't say that happily, I don't say it smugly, I say it with all soberness and and contriteness of heart. I, I say it pleading with you, saying why? Why would you do that? Why would you reject such a beautiful gift? Why would you live in separation from God who loves you? You know, I love to share the good news of the gospel. But it wouldn't be fair if I, if I didn't also tell you the rest of the story. If I didn't explain the high price of rejecting or, or not making a decision for this offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. He says, beware therefore, lest what is spoken of in the prophets should also come upon you. And in closing, let's look at how the people responded to this message. The response from verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The whole city. Can you imagine this? I mean, the place is packed. People are waiting outside. There's a crowd, you know, flowing out into the streets. Both Jews and Gentiles, they've come here to hear this news that Paul has to share with this man, about this man named Jesus. However, though, it seems that this crowd had a negative effect on the Jewish leaders of that time. You see, they had never been able to draw a crowd like that. And we read in verse 45 that when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 50. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and driving them out from their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet and against them and went into Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
You know, for many people, this news about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, for many of them, it was like water to a person who's dying of thirst. It brought refreshment, it brought relief, it brought life to their soul. But others, we see, hardened their hearts and they changed the subject. Did you notice that? That the people who took issue with Paul and Barnabas' message, it wasn't the content of the message that they disagreed with. No, their issue was personal. And I'll tell you what, nine times out of ten, when people have a problem with Christianity, it isn't philosophical or theological. Nine times out of ten, it's personal. It's something that happened to them, someone they knew, something that happened to someone they know. And that was the case for these people as well. They let this personal issue, which was jealousy and insecurity, they let it cause them to not even consider the message of the gospel. And at what a dire cost to themselves. And how sad that is when people don't even give ear to the, or consideration to the good news of the gospel because of some personal issue in their lives. So many people do that. But I love the response of the Gentiles. It says when they heard the good news about what Jesus had done for them, that Jesus had come to save them, they rejoiced. And I picture this crowd of people rejoicing and cheering and thanking God for them. The gospel was like water to someone dying of thirst. And the result we read in the last verse is that they were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, interestingly, this is exactly what the Old Testament predicted would happen when the Messiah came. Isaiah chapter 44, if you're interested, read along with me. Isaiah 44 from verse 3, God's speaking of a time in the future at that point, and he says this, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. This prophecy, especially if you read in different translations, what it's speaking of is how when the Messiah comes, people from all nations will come and they will turn to the Lord. And for them, the gospel will be like water in a thirsty land, like new rivers flowing where before there was only death, it will bring about new life. This is something that Jesus himself was referring to in the gospel of John chapter 7. When at the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus stands up and says to the crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is making reference to this prophecy. And he's saying, friends, brothers, this has been fulfilled in me. All you who are dry, all you who are dead inside, come to me, receive the gospel. All who thirst, come to me, and in me you will find relief, you will find refreshment, you will find new life where before there has only been death. You who are empty inside, come to me, and I will fill you up to overflowing. And I'll tell you this, that this invitation is open to you and me today as well. Do you thirst? Do you desire to be satisfied and made truly alive? Then embrace the gospel. Embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you and let it touch and affect and bring life to every part of your life. Amen? Will you stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for this great promise of the gospel. Lord, that where there has been death, you will bring life. And we pray that that would be true in our lives. And we pray that we would heed that invitation like these Gentiles who were so happy to know that salvation had come for them, that God loved them, that God had come to save them. And for them it was like 
like water in a dry land for a thirsty person. Lord, would that be true of us as well? Would you build within us a greater thirst, Lord, that you could even fulfill that thirst all the more? And we pray all this in Jesus' name, that as we go out from this place, Lord, we would live out the implications of these great truths for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.